Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. What a beautiful day. Do we have any announcements? No announcements today? Okay, just sign up for women's luncheon. Today, there's a church dinner after. That's right, it's Communion Sunday. I knew that. That's making sure you guys were paying attention. (laughs) They only wake me up for the important meetings, Mike. (laughs) Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, Lord, just as we are, uh, just like the hymn says, Father, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for for us, Lord. Uh, And we're so grateful for that gift. And we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, because we're gathered here in His name, and we understand that we only have access to the understanding of Your Word, Father, and access to Your throne room and to Your grace and mercy and forgiveness because of Jesus Christ, Father, and for what He won for us at Calvary and through His resurrection. And so, in His name, we ask You today, Father, to be with us during this service. We ask, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would be present to touch people's lives and touch people's hearts, uh, to bring knowledge, to bring understanding and wisdom, to bring peace, Father, to bring conviction and and chastening where we need it. Uh, Father, that you would break down the things in our lives, Lord, that are um, antagonistic against you and your word, and that you would build up the things in our lives, Father, that lend towards us knowing your heart better, Father, and being better conformed into the image of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that you would have your way in this place this morning, Lord. Your word can speak to each person's heart by the Holy Spirit, Lord, exactly what it is that they need to hear from you today, Father. I could never do that, nor could any man Uh, But you can, Father, miraculously. So we ask that you would do just that. And once again, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. We are in the book of Deuteronomy. uh, And we are going to be picking up in actually chapter 26, verse uh, 16. uh, And we're going to be heading towards chapter 27, verse 9. And then Dad's going to pick it up in the second service from there. Uh, So chapter 26 of Deuteronomy. Now they're Again, as they're drawing close to the promised land, as they're coming to that place, and you think of uh, where the children of Israel have been and what they've been through and what God has brought them through and where God has brought them from being in bondage, you know, some 400 years in, in slavery in Egypt, just horrible awful uh, bondage and slavery. God, when he appears to Moses, says, the cries of my people have reached my ears, and it is time. Now, he had prophesied to Abraham before before then that they would be in Egypt, that they would be in bondage in Egypt. He had prophesied, and all of that even was to serve a purpose. Now, this is one of the hard things for people to understand. It's one of the reasons that people reject God, uh, and, and oftentimes what you'll find is what, what the problem that people have with God is his sovereignty, right? The problem that people have with God is that he's God. Who does God think he is? God, right? Uh, well, he's God and he's sovereign. And God, throughout the course of history, has used some horrible things to accomplish his will. And the question then is, is brought up and risen, well then why or how could a good God or a loving God or a gracious or merciful God allow these things to happen to those who he called his own people? Uh, so many Jewish people after World War II and after the Holocaust really became agnostic or atheist in their thinking because the, the, the thought and the, and, the, and the feeling that they had in their heart was what kind of a God would put his people through what he put us through? 
Now, we have to understand that God's economy and God's way of looking at things and God's way of thinking is absolutely opposite, different, above, beyond the way we look at things. One of the major reasons that we need to have faith and that we need to have trust in the Lord God is because there has to be an understanding that his ways are above my ways. His thoughts are above my thoughts. As David says, your thoughts are like the sand of the seashore and they're beyond knowing or finding out. Uh, it, later in the New Testament, Paul talking about our prayer towards him, sometimes there's, there's nothing to be said. There's no words to be even said. And his spirit intercedes with our spirit through groans that cannot be uttered. There's this understanding of, of sometimes just coming before God and just going, I mean, and I say this, I actually verbalize this. Sometimes I just go, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, and you know all the stuff I've forgotten to pray about today. You know, Lord, I put it all before you. I put it all before you. You ever think about the fact that he stands outside of time? If you ever find yourself in a situation where somebody asked you to pray for them, I know this is only me. This has never happened to you. It's only just me, right? Where someone has said, would you pray for me for this thing? Of course I will. I'm a very godly man. And then two days after the thing that I was supposed to be praying for them about and I never prayed for them, I'll still pray for them at that point in time. Don't you ever say to yourself, it's too late now to pray for them because your God stands outside of time. Do you understand? That you are confined to this timeline, but he is not. And he can intercede wherever he wants to in the timeline. Sometimes I've prayed for things after they've happened, for things that happened before. And I believe that God was able to, before then, at the time of that thing, see my prayer from the future and act upon it. That's the God we serve. He's so beyond us, he's so above us, that for the believer, for those who would put their hope and their trust in him, there ought to be this continual thought process and this need in our hearts to just rely on him. I was having a conversation with my son, one of my sons the other day, talking about you know, his life and moving forward, and what are your plans for this life? You know, he's got the same plans that any 16-year-old has for their life, Ooh, you know what I mean? So, uh, and, I, and what I was sharing with him is just trust the Lord, trust God. You know, you walk the path, you walk the steps, you do the things that you know you're supposed to do. You do the things that you know that you need to do. The things that are right and moral and just in your heart and the things that the scripture says. And you do those things and you let God take care of the rest of the things in your life. You trust him and you say to him, God, my life is in your hands and I would, act, I would ask you that you would intercede where you see fit to do so, open and shut doors where you see fit to do so, move the train tracks as you see fit to do so and guide my life. I'm just going to trust that as I walk along the path, putting my faith and hope in you, that you're going to guide me and you're going to put me exactly where you want me to be. That's the God we serve. So there has to be this understanding in order to have faith like that, that he is sovereign, that he is mighty, that he is above all and in all, and he works through all things and that his, his ways and his truths are absolute. And there has to be this dependence uh, <clears throat> on God. So God has used some horrible things, such as the bondage of his children in the land of Egypt. 
in order to bring them from that place in the perfect time, because he told Abraham hundreds of years before, I'm not yet bringing you into the promised land because the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its fulfillment. Remember, he told that to Abraham. In other words, this group of people that lived in Canaan, the promised land where he was bringing the children of Israel, and one of the main reasons he was bringing them there was not just to put them in the land where he placed his name, but it was to bring judgment upon the inhabitants of that land because the wickedness of their lives and their lifestyles and the way they conducted every aspect of their lives was so repugnant to the ways of God and so wicked that it was time for judgment. That's the other thing that people have a problem with God about, that he reserves the right to judge. And he brings judgment when, where, why, and how he sees fit. That's the God we serve. And so he judged the world through a worldwide flood. And he judged Sodom and Gomorrah by raining down fire and brimstone. And he judged the land of Canaan by bringing in the Israelites and telling them, wipe out these civilizations. They are altogether wicked. And the ways that they worship their gods are so repugnant and so vile. They are a stench in my nostrils. And not only that, don't you think to yourself that once I give you victory in the land and give you victory over them and judge the inhabitants of the land and you enter in and take their place in that land, that if you begin to do the same things, there's going to be any less judgment for you. God's truths, once again, are absolute. And no one is immune from them. Well, God has to understand my heart. He understands your heart. Well, God needs to understand the situation. God does understand the situation. And he still requires us to follow after him. And he still requires us to be obedient to his word. So after all those hundreds of years of slavery at just the right time in history and through just the right time when just the right person in history was born because Moses was born at 40 years of age, he realized who he was and what he was and he went out to see the bondage of his people and he saw an Egyptian beating one of them and he said, well, it's me, I'm the chosen one, right? So time, it's delivering time. And he smoked the Egyptian right? And buried him in the sand. And he thought, now they're going to know who I am and they're going to follow me. And then he sees two Israelites quarreling and he tries to intercede. And they say, who made you judge over us? You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian. And this whole thing takes place, this scandal. Moses has to flee Egypt. The Pharaoh seeks to take his life. He flees Egypt. He goes out into the desert where for 40 more years, God prepares his man. Now he was the chosen one. But God didn't need Moses, and God didn't need any of Moses' great talents or abilities. Moses was an orator. Moses was a warrior. Moses was a man who could plan battles, and he could carry them out, and he could bring victory, and he could lead men. And God brings him out into the desert, and he has him just leading sheep, and he breaks him down to the point where then 40 years later, when he's 80-some years old, and God appears to him in the burning bush, Moses says, I can't talk, and I got nothing to give. And God says, perfect, now I can use you. And the great lesson there for all of us is that God does not need anything from you other than your belief, your faith, your obedience, right? Faith and obedience, those two things working hand in hand, there's nothing that God can't do. There's nothing that God can't do through you. The problem that we have is that we tend to take our lives back into our own hands because we know best. But we don't know best. God knows best. He wants us to be obedient to him. 
So now, he's brought them out into the promised land, the law at Mount Sinai. They go through the wilderness to the promised land. They see the giants that live in the land. We can't do it. We can't go in there. God's brought us here to die. God says, you are going to die now out in the desert. Your children are going to go in. So for 40 years, they wander in the desert till that generation's wiped out, except for Joshua and Caleb. And then God brings them back now to the promised land. And Deuteronomy literally means second law. Okay, so now it's bringing to remembrance. You understand? Now, one of the things you're going to find at church, if a church is preaching the word of God, is there's going to be a lot of redundancy. We're going to say the same things to you over and over and over and over and over again, or God is going to try to say the same things as you read the word to you over and over and over again. For the same reason, when you were a kid, your parents said things over and over and over and over and over again. Why did you tell me that a thousand times, Ma? If you would listen the first time, your mom would say, I wouldn't have to tell you a thousand times, right? The problem is we don't listen. And so the second law here is given. And all of these things are brought back to remembrance before they enter into the promised land. And that's where we find ourselves. Deuteronomy 26, and starting with verse 16, it says this, this day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. No other reason for obedience is needed other than that God has commanded it. God created all things. He will bring an end to all things and recreate all things. And our role in this timeline from the beginning of creation to the end of creation is barely a blip on the radar. I'm going to read to you a verse from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. A couple of verses. Here's what James says to the church. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. James is making that statement that Paul has made so many times in his epistles. Your life is not your own. Your life is this. Boom. And God has put such great care and consideration into you, a mist, that every aspect of our lives ought to be lived like this, if it's the Lord's will. Now listen, it is the Lord's will for you to shower. It is the Lord's will for you to brush your teeth. I'm making a point here. I'm not trying to be funny. It is the Lord's will for you to do the right things. All right? When Madison was just a little girl and we were staying with Nan and Pop, one of the many times we stayed with Nan and Pop up, sainthood right there, boom, was stamped upon them during those times. <laughs> and they were watching Madison. She was just a little tiny girl. And they were like, Madison, it's time to go to bed. And she went like this, if it's the Lord's will. <laughs> That's what May May said. Uh, it was the Lord's will because her grandparents told her it was time to go to bed, right? You don't have to pray and ask God to do the common sense things. Just do them, right? There are certain things that God has put in you. You have an innate understanding that you know you need to do, okay? You don't have to spiritualize every single thing in your life. It's a given your life belongs to God. God, I'm going to live this life you understand, Christian, you are free. You understand, it is for freedom that Christ has made you free. 
When Abraham was brought to the promised land and showed it by God, God said to him, now Abraham, I want you to wander throughout the promised land from the north to the south to the east to the west. And there was a picture given there that those who live by faith, because Abraham is the father, the Bible teaches us, of those who believe, you are free to wander within the confines of God's will. You are free to wander and to roam within the confines of God's word. But you are free. You're never free to go outside of the borders of God's word. You're never free to go outside the borders of God's will for your life. But within those borders, which are big, you are free. And so we live our lives like this. God, I'm going to live my life. I love my life. I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to live it to the fullest with the people that I love and the people that you put into my life that come in and out. I'm going to try to be a blessing to them. And I'm going to live my life before you. You guide me. You show me. You don't have to overthink everything, Christian. Every little thing. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. Just walk. Just walk. You know what I'm saying? If God needs to bump you in a different direction, he has no problem doing so. Right? I don't understand why this thing happened. You just got bumped, maybe. You know what I'm saying? We freak out about it. <laughs> oh, God hates me. <laughs> no, no, he bumped you, right? So often, let him do his thing. But you have to trust him. You have to trust him. Jesus would say to the people, if you give good gifts to your children being evil, how much more do you think your heavenly father will give good gifts, and especially the Holy Spirit, to those who are called according to him, who have called in the name of his son, who love him? He is that, that song we sing, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's my identity. That's my self-worth. That's my self-value. You are a treasure. You are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure that the rich man sold all that he had in order to possess. And I just don't have anything nicer I could ever say to you. I have no way of building your self-esteem in any other way or in any greater way than to tell you you are loved by the Creator. You are special to Him, and He has a plan for you. There's no greater, greater thing on earth. But you have to trust Him. And to live in that trust, to understand that verse, godliness with contentment is great gain. And to be able to live within that, it's a place of peace. It's a place of rest. We jump in and out of it because we jump in and out of the flesh. <laughs> but that's where God wants us to live. So we owe him our obedience in verse 16 simply because he's commanded it. But in 17 to 19, we're going to find that God's desire is not simply to rule over his people, but to have a relationship with them. Starting in verse 17, today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. And that don't just gloss over that. You have, you have said with your mouth, I will put my faith and my hope and my trust in Yahweh, in Adonai, in the Lord of hosts, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you, that you should keep all of his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God just as he, as he has spoken. And so God wants to have more than just, I'm God, do what I say or else. That's not the relationship that God has ever wanted with his people. God always is looking for a relationship. The barrier 
keeping, the, uh, keeping us from this, of course, the re, uh, from that reality is our sin. So, this, what we just read, this is the covenant. This is the transaction between God and his people. They, will, they were to worship him alone and obey his commandments, and in return, he would bring blessing upon them and make them first among all the nations. The keys to intimacy of any kind are goodness and honesty towards one another, okay? Now, the scripture relates often our relationship with Christ to a marriage. Goodness to have intimacy, real intimacy, there has to be goodness towards one another, charity towards one another, and honesty towards one another, okay? Those two things. There's other things that too, but honesty and goodness. When I think of my wife, I only want what's best for her. And hopefully, when I'm thinking the right way, what's best for her is more important than what's best for me, right? That's where you want to have a really good marriage. You think like that all the time. Her needs are more important than my needs. His needs are more important than my needs. But goodness and truth, honesty, are key, essential towards intimacy. So, intimacy with God, the same thing. Goodness and truth, okay? Understanding the truth, knowing the truth, and saying in my heart, I choose to do what he's commanded me to do. That's the goodness. I choose to do what he's commanded me to do. I choose to live my life according to his statutes and then to be truthful and to be honest with him. It's amazing to me people aren't honest with God. It's amazing to me. You know, uh, you, can, you can be dishonest to me. I'm, I'm thick. You know what I mean? I'm not that hard to trick. But you can never trick or fool God. He knows every aspect of your life. He knows every single minute detail of what's going on in your life, in your heart, and in your mind. He knows it all. There is nothing that's hidden from him. So be honest with him. That's key. The problem with the covenant, as is what happens sometimes in marriage, is that we have a hard time maintaining goodness and honesty. <laughs> James chapter 4, going back to, verse, uh, to, to James in chapter 4, James says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, that war in your members? In other words, anytime you have conflict with another human being, okay, somebody's flesh is involved, right? Either one party or the other party or both parties, their flesh is involved, right? If you're a believer, if you're a follower in Jesus Christ, the Bible says live, at pe live peaceably with all men whenever that's possible. Now, people may want to war with you, but walking in the Spirit means that you never want to war back. That's where the turning the other cheek comes in, comes into play. That's where doing good to those who persecute you and to those who speak ill of you. To have this knowing and have this understanding that my relationship with men, with mankind, all is filtered through my relationship with God. And so if a person stabs you in the back, or if a person does you wrong, you don't have to take it personally. You don't have to take it personally, because hopefully you weren't doing it for them in the first place. You were doing it for the Lord. Uh, this is the human struggle. <laughs> we can't achieve the blessings of God 
because we simply cannot live up to the requirements that bring the blessing. And this is the picture of the law, the picture of the commandments. So going into chapter 27 now, God is going to set up this elaborate ceremony that he's going to require the nation to go through. And this ceremony spans literally between two mountains that are separated by over two and a half miles uh, and the valley in the center. Uh, We'll start in, in verse one of chapter 27. Now Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the, the Lord your God is giving you that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. If you want to read about this, Joshua chapter 8 is when it covers this. After the defeat of Jericho, and then eventually their defeat of Ai, before they, uh, and as soon as they crossed over the Jordan River, Joshua obeyed this command and they did this. Therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal... You shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build the whole stones, the altar of the Lord your God. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. And so God now through Moses is telling the people, here's the covenant that I have with you, okay? The covenant I have. Now, Christian, when we're talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant, it's very important that we understand the differences, okay? The way that God worked through the children of Israel, through the nation of Israel, is different than how God is working through the church today, okay? We are not Israel. We are, the scripture tells us, engrafted branches, right, into the promises of God that he gave to Israel, But the old covenant is different from the new covenant. The covenant that we have with God is a covenant of grace, right? All of your righteousness, all of your goodness, and all of your approval before God is based on your relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? That's where it all comes from. In the old covenant, it was a performance-based covenant. It was a performance-based covenant. These are the laws, and these are the statutes of the Lord your God. If you do these things, then you'll be blessed. If you do not do these things, then you will not be blessed. In fact, I'll bring on you the curses that I'm bringing on the people that I'm dispossessing before you, okay? What we find out in the New Testament when the church fathers gather together to have this conversation about what should we require of these Gentiles Uh, in the new church, because they were being told by some of the Jewish believers, you need to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses, they come to the conclusion, we would not put a burden upon the Gentiles that neither we nor our forebears were able to do. We could never keep the law. The point of the old covenant and the point of the law was to show us how far we are from God. It was never to justify 
That's why when Jesus Christ comes on the scene and he teaches the, the Sermon on the Mount, he goes further than the law. Remember when he said, you've heard it said, but I tell you, and he gives us this much deeper truth and meaning that goes to the heart of the issue. It's not just the physical act of doing something wrong. It's what's happening inside of your heart that condemns you. And that's when he told his disciples, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Their minds were like, boom, minds blown. What do you mean? Unless our righteousness supersedes that of the holy men, we can't go to heaven? Oh my, what does that mean? It certainly can't. We can't do these things. That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. That all would stand condemned before God by the law so that the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and that free gift of salvation could then take over and come into each one of our lives. Uh, so God sets up this elaborate ceremony for the entire nation that spans between two mountains, Mount Ebal, and Dad's going to get into uh, Mount Gerizim, and the valley uh, as a kind of inaugural event to enter into the land and into this covenant when they, when they are entering into the promised land. So just a couple of facts and figures. The mountains are two and a half miles apart, and Mount Ebal is higher than Mount Gerizim by about 200 feet. They're both roughly 3,000 feet above sea level. Uh, and half the tribes would be represented on Mount Gerizim to pronounce or to amen obedience okay? The Levites are going to call out the blessings and the cursing, and they're going to say that all the people are going to say amen, and all of the people that are standing on Mount Gerizim are representative of the blessing, if you do these things, okay? And then half of the tribes would be represented on Mount Ebal, which was going to represent the cursings, right? In other words, if you don't do these things. So whenever the Levites would pronounce the curse, cursed is the man, cursed is the man, it would, the, all the assembly would say, amen. And on the one mountain, the amen was representing, amen, we're not going to do these things, and we're going to receive the blessing. And the other, the other mountain was, was pronouncing amen to these curses shall surely come upon us, if we do these things, if we do not obey the Lord our God. And the Levites are going to do the talking from the Mount of Blessing and pronounce the curse for disobedience, and all the people would say amen. Again, the two mountains representing the choice given with this amen. Uh, so here's something that's interesting. Uh, the whitewashed stones that they were to write all of the tablets of the law upon and the altar of sacrifice both were put upon the mountain of cursing. Interesting, Mount Ebal was the mountain of cursing, and that's where the letter of the law went. That's where all the writings of the law were to go on those whitewashed stones and the altar of sacrifice. Both went on that mountain of cursing. The idea here is that disobedience to God by not obeying the law is going to bring the curse, and the only, the only solution for that is what? The sacrifice right? Now, in the old covenant, in those days, it was sacrifices of sheep and goats and oxen and turtle doves and grain and wine and all of the different offerings that God had set up through Moses, okay? All of these offerings that were given, both to make atonement for sin and to enter into fellowship with God. But these were offerings that had to be offered continually, day by day. You go in, you offer sacrifices for the sins you committed, you had committed, you go out, two days later, you blow it again, guess what? You're right back to square one. 
And so residing on this mountain of cursing, residing on this mountain of this is what happens if you don't obey the law, if you do, don't do the things that the law has commanded you to do, are the writings of the law and the altar of sacrifice. And we'll read a couple of verses to you. Um, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law... Now, you remember in Galatians, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he starts to, he kind of chastises them and rebukes them a little bit, because they called these guys Judaizers, okay? And they were Jewish men who had become Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, but still sought to be uh, zealous for the law, right? And for the, for the traditions of the religion of Judaism, and so they were literally following around behind Peter and Paul and Apollos and some of these other apostles. He, they were literally following behind them when they would plant a church in Galatia and then they would leave. These guys would come in and start telling the Gentile believers, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the laws of Moses. And so this legalism was creeping into the church. And this is what Paul's dealing with when he writes this letter to the church in Galatians. Is that famous verse where he says, you foolish Galatians. Remember, Paul was super, super user-friendly. You know what I mean? Like, that's how you start a church. That's how you bring the people in. You idiots. You know what I mean? You foolish Galatians. And he says, who has bewitched you? That's, that's hard words, man. Who has bewitched you? Having begun with grace, are you now going to be made completed through the law? And so he says here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, for as many are as of the works of the law are under the curse. They're under Mount, I can never remember the name, Ebal. They're under the cursings of Mount Ebal. That's where the law is. The law brings a curse. Why? Because the law is bad. God would, uh, Paul would say, God forbid. Of course not. The law is perfect. The problem is I'm bad. I'm sold under sin. And so the law can never bring justification. It can only condemn us. For as many as of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He would also say, if you've broken one portion of the law, you've broken the entire thing. You stand guilty. And we've used the, the analogy before. You get pulled over for speeding. Okay, you're doing 120 in a 30, let's say, right? And the cop pulls you over and is, he's calling in the tow truck and putting you in cuffs. I've never sped in my life. I've never broken the law in my life. You don't understand, officer. I'm just having a bad day. This is just one time. I'll never, ever speed again. And he's going to say, thank you for that. I appreciate your honesty and I appreciate you obeying the law. But you've broken the law today. And something has to be done to pay for that broken law. And you're the one going to pay it, right? That's the way it works. So if you keep all the law, you mark it off. Oh, I'm doing everything. I'm eating all the food the right way. I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating the right festivals. I'm doing everything right. And then Paul uses the idea of covetousness. Now, covetousness is not something you can see, right? Covetousness is something that happens inside of your heart, something that you want that isn't yours or that God hasn't given to you. And Paul said, I'm keeping all the, the, the commandments and requirements of the law. And then he says, thou shalt not covet. And I'm slain by the law that I seek to follow. Because I've broken the law now. And I'm this lawbreaker. That's what the law does. And that's all the law can ever do. But right alongside of the law, which brings the curse, is the sacrifice. Is the sacrifice which releases us 
from the curse of sin. Now, Paul would say in the New Testament that the blood of rams and bulls and goats really could never, ever really atone for sin. It was God's grace and God's mercy that allowed those sacrifices so that his people could continue in a relationship with him. But they were never actually good enough to cleanse people from sin. But he says this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. We just read this a couple weeks ago. For it is written, that's in, this is in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, it's interesting. Before Moses died, before they come into the promised land, this law is given. Cursed is the person who hangs upon a tree. God knowing that his only son was going to be the one who hung on a tree. And before that, when they, had, when they had been coming towards the promised land and began to grumble and God had sent in the fiery serpents among them to bite them and people were dying from the snake bites and God gives Moses this specific instruction to erect this brass pole with a serpent wrapped around it that when people would look at it, they would live. Why a serpent? A serpent is representative of sin. And he became sin who knew no sin that you and I, I might be called sons of God. That means sons and daughters of God, by the way. He became sin. Jesus Christ became the curse. He literally was hung on a tree for you and I, and he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So what does this mean for us? What is Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim for the Christian? Because we're not under the law. We are under grace through Jesus Christ. Our two mountains are the flesh and the spirit. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, we have the Holy Spirit available to us to help us live that life of blessing. But we cannot have fellowship with him while we walk in the flesh, right? Even those of us who are saved, even those of us who are hopefully all of us who are born again and have put our faith and our hope and trust in Jesus Christ, it's not a magic rabbit's foot. There's not some umbrella thing. So now I can do whatever I want and I'm forgiven. That has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. We are now called as believers to walk in the light as he is in the light. And Paul says you'll have fellowship with one another if you walk in the light as he is in the light and his blood will cleanse us from all of our transgressions, from all of our sins. Our job, our mountains, if you will, are the flesh which is the Mount of Cursing, and the Spirit, which is the Mount of Blessing. Isn't it amazing? Do you ever, are you ever amazed at your own ability to run to the flesh, to continually run to the flesh? Somebody cuts you off in traffic, God bless you, brother. God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May his face shine upon you so brightly that you lose control of your vehicle and go into a cliff. You know what I mean? I mean, immediately, you know, we have these knee-jerk reactions where we just jump into the flesh. Not you, me. I All the time, right? Constantly these knee-jerk reactions where I then go to my, why do I always do that? And every once in a while, I'll have these small victories, and my wife will say to me, you know, I'll be telling her what happened to me, because I'm like Calamity Jane, you know, like Calamity Frank, you know, it's always something with me, it's always, it's always something, always, right, on purpose, I, I know it for a fact that God on purpose just throws things in front of me, you know what I mean, to test me and to try me, and I thank him for it, and I'll be telling Nikki a story about something that happened, and she'll be like, whoa, did you freak out? Did you, she has a lot of faith in me, did you freak out? Did you lose your mind? What horrible thing did you do, you know what I mean? 
And I find my, as, as I walk with the Lord and as time goes on, it's like, you know what, babe? I didn't freak out at all. Like, I wasn't angry at all. And it's like this thing happened all of a sudden. I'm like, wow, I didn't freak out. I didn't lose my mind. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. That's what this walk is. It's running towards the Spirit, running towards the mountain of blessing and running away from the mountain of your own flesh. The mountain of our flesh, right, it only brings destruction, man. It may seem like the greatest thing. It may feel like the greatest thing. It may look like the greatest thing. It may appear to be the greatest thing. Everyone might be telling you it's the greatest thing. If in your heart of hearts as a believer in Jesus Christ and as a follower of him, you know that it's something that doesn't line up with his word or something that doesn't line up with what he's called you to do or be in your life, you run from that. It doesn't matter what every other person is saying to you. You run from that. Because your blessing is only ever going to be at the mountain of the Spirit, right? Amen? All right, let's share in communion. Speaking of blessing, speaking of mountains of blessing, come on up, guys. We'll do, well, uh, let me talk for a little bit, I guess, first. Um, this is a mountain of blessing for you and I. This is a mountain of blessing for you and I. And this is, the for me, one of my very favorite things about our faith in, in Christ and the relationship that we have with God through Him is that every single day, Yesterday doesn't matter. It matters to everyone else in your life. You know what I'm saying? You ever blow it at work on a Friday and you're like, you know Monday it's coming, right? You know what I mean? Monday it's coming, like it's all going to come down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the call, you know, hey, Frank, can I see you in my office? <laughs> you know, it's all coming back and chickens are coming home to roost, you know. So often people hold grudges, people, people for, never forget, people remember. It's not that way with God. The Bible says he takes your sins as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. So the day, three days, three, I mean, Christians are still years down the road after they've horror something that they've done some awful thing in their life are still beating themselves up over it. And oh God, and God's like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. It's been nailed to the cross. It's been covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no yesterday, friend. There's today and there's the hope for tomorrow and ultimately the hope of the return of our Lord and Savior. That's the ultimate hope, right? The older you get, youngsters, young people, the older you get, trust me, the older you get, the more disenfranchised you will feel with this world. You're waiting, I know you're waiting for it to get better. It's going to get better. No. <laughs> no. It's not going to get better. This world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse and worse. And you're going to be like, if you look and seek for hope and fulfillment in this world, especially if you've been called, if you've been called by Jesus Christ and you've been sealed, the Bible says, sealed for that day of redemption, you are ruined for this world. And if you seek fulfillment out of the things of this world, you will be horribly dissatisfied. And you will have an emptiness inside of you. Always. And the older you get, the more, the more absolutely stark the contrast becomes between the things of this world and the things of God. Run to the things of God. The blessings that God has for you there are beyond, beyond comparison, beyond riches. You know what I mean? I always joke around and say, I'm the richest man in America. I am the richest man in America. There's never a day. Like, I get so giddy. Literally, I'll be, I'll be standing on my back porch and I'll just be like, <laughs> you know, like that. Like a psycho. You know what I mean? Some sort of a weirdo. Well, if the shoe fits, I guess. But I'm so, I feel so blessed. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve the good things. God is so good. Is he so good? 
He's so good, right? And the greatest example of that is, is, is this communion. So Jesus Christ, it's Passover, right? It's Passover time, and he's going to have the Seder with his disciples. And he said, oh, I've longed to have this Seder dinner with you. Now, he'd done Seders, no doubt, with his disciples before that. Every year, he was a practicing Jew, right? He kept the law. And he said, but I've longed to share this one with you. And he changes everything up. And he takes the Passover meal and he turns it into the fulfillment of what it all meant going back to Egypt, to the destroyer who comes through to kill all the firstborn. And if you only, only the only households that are going to be saved from the destroyer are those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home. And Jesus said, my blood is that blood which is shed for you to put on the doorposts of your heart that the destroyer would pass over your life. It's my blood if you put your faith in me. And my body is this bread, this unleavened bread. Leaven was representative of sin, and so the Jews were to have bread with no leaven. And Jesus said, my body is the unleavened bread. There is no sin in me, and yet I'm going to be broken for you. And not only am I sharing this with you guys, he says to his disciples, I'm sharing this with you guys. And for all who would ever put their faith and hope and trust in my name for all ages to come, this meal is for you too. This is your Passover meal. Every time we share this, I hope you think about that, that it never becomes some tradition or some uh, just thing that we do at church. Oh, it's communion, it's communion. No, 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 no. This truly is the meal that heals it truly is. And whether it's just Welch's grape juice from Wegmans, right? And the matzah crackers from the international aisle or whatever. Or, or whether it's Jesus Christ speaking his, his life, death, and resurrection into your heart depends entirely on you. Do you believe? Do you believe in him? Do you believe what he said? Then this belongs to you. Amen? Let's share. Let's share it together. Come on up, guys. I've been 
responsibilities At times so much was demanded of me When I failed at anything I questioned God's abilities There were things that seemed important to me yesterday That are meaningless or have died away Things I've learned to give to Jesus Christ He keeps for that final day And Jesus says give, give it all to me That you might live, live it everything That what you receive may come to life You must let it Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Never heard that song before. It's a little folky for me. But the words. I, I was, you ever, again, it's always, it's always the spirit in the flesh, isn't it? I'm sorry. I'm supposed, I should be somber right now, but it's me. Okay, give me a second here. I'm listening to the word, and I'm like, who is this? After church, I'm going to scream at whoever played this. Who, whose decision was it to play this this song, I don't want to hear that man's voice ever again. And then, and then the Lord says, you, can you not just, uh, you just preached this. You just, just now stopped talking. And listen to the words. Oh, yeah, yeah, Lord. oh, those are good words. Praise God. Praise Jesus, right? Amen. You know what? We can be real, right? If we're nothing else in this place, right? Let us always be real with one another, right? You know, like comedian once said, keeping it real, real dumb. <laughs> That's me. That's me. But God is so good. I am so, I'm, I'm always giddy, right? I'm always giddy because this is such a celebration for you and I. It's such an absolute celebration, right? Never to be taken for granted, never to be taken lightly, to be in, but to be enjoyed, to be enjoyed. God knows my frame. I love that. He knows that I'm dust. He remembers and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness never fails. Mine fails. Mine fails daily. His, though, never fails. That's why he calls himself a rock. That's why Jesus said, build the foundation of your life upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Don't build it on the shifting sands of the things of this world or of your own feelings and emotions for that matter. Because when the winds and the waves and the storms of life come upon a house built on those shifting sands, it's going to crash, and great will be its fall. But if you build your house on the rock, it might blow the shingles off, might break some windows, right? But that house will stand firm because it's upon the rock. He is the rock, amen? amen. Let's celebrate. Thank you, Jesus. For your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we ask that you would go with us from this place, Lord. 
out into the mission field of the world. And help us to shine that light, Father, that you've lit inside of each one of us. Help it to grow brighter day by day, Lord. And help us to always be running uh, towards Mount Gerizim, Father, the mountain of blessing, the mountain of the things of the Spirit, and away from the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Love you, fam.